Welcome to another episode of So You Can Hear Me When I'm Gone. I'm your co-host, Stacey Saunders, here with Dallin. Hey, everyone. If you're a first-time listener, this is the podcast where we explore the lives and journeys of various family members. We enjoy hearing their stories and experiences and hope to capture wisdom and truth to share with future generations. All people go through life and they come away from certain experiences with gems of truth, nuggets of wisdom, certain bits of knowledge that they know for sure. And it's our purpose on this show to capture, if we can, those gems of knowledge and wisdom so we can share them with future generations. As part of our respect for the privacy of the guests we have on our show, we release two versions of the episode, a public version and a privacy honoring version, which can be provided to you, our listeners, by emailing host at soyoucanhearme.com. Today, we have a guest with us, J.R. Smith, who is my dad. J.R., welcome to the show. Thank you so much. Good Sabbath. Well, Uncle John, who are you in the family? So we're, we've got you as a guest, and but who are you in the family here? Well, so I was born John Raymond Smith to second son of William R. and Gertrude H. Smith. I was born in Billings, Montana. And my brother was William K. Smith, and he's already passed away. But in on March 10th, 1978, I married... Karen, Alon, Perry, and that's how I got hooked into the family. We were sealed in the Oakland, California temple. While we were attending BYU, we took a weekend off and flew to Oakland and got married. So it was it's a good thing. Yeah, absolutely. It's a gorgeous temple, too. Yeah, it is. So, Stace, this is your dad, my uncle. Married yep. uh, my uh, my dad's sister, and then uh, yeah, so Uncle John, we're uh, we're more than happy to have you here. Tell us tell us a fun story about growing up. Did you you were born in Billings, but did you grow up in Billings? And then my my uh, my grandfather, my great grandfather bought some land on the Crow Indian Reservation. Somehow, I don't know how he was able to buy that, but I guess he bought it from the Indians. Anyway, my grand that was my grandmother's dad, and so he bought it for my grandmother and, and her family. And so my dad was living on the Crow Indian Reservation when I was born. and um, and But my mom went up to Billings, which is about 80 miles away, to the hospital where I was born. But uh, when I was about four years old, we moved out to Sarah, Washington, where my mom's parents were at at that time. And they had a 40-acre farm. And my grandfather had maybe 10 or 12 cows. and he um, So he had a small dairy. But uh, they had worked in the shipyards in Vancouver, Portland during World War II, building ships and uh, working for the government. It was a job after the Great Depression. So it was a place for actually both of my grandparents and my mom all worked in the shipyards. And my dad at that time was drafted. So he was in World War II. But uh, so no, I didn't spend too much time 
uh, too many years after I was born back at the ranch, but um, the ranch is still in the family. But uh, so, yeah, I started, my, my best memories are when we were living in a little community called Sarah, and it's still kind of considered a community, but it doesn't really exist anymore. And I went to grade school in a country school there that had, I don't know if it had four or eight grades, but first and second grade were combined in one room. And uh, right across the street was a little Methodist church that we went to, and and we lived on the farm with my grandparents out there, Howard and Adina Keithler. So, uh, but you I, called them Poppy, Poppy and, and Grandma. Yeah, know? yeah, and they were kind of my favorite grandparents just because I spent a lot of my life with them, and I didn't get my grandfather Smith. Uh, Grandpa Smith died when I was five, and uh, just at not long after we had moved out of, out to Washington. And Grandma Smith, um, I had a I had a favorite experience with Grandma Smith. Well, so anyway, after we left Sarah, we went to uh, my dad got a job with Alice Chalmers, the tractor company, and we moved to Powell, Wyoming. And my grandmother Smith was living in Thermopolis, Wyoming, in a what was called the old pioneer home. It was a retirement home. And uh, we took the train, she took the train from Thermopolis and it came through a little place called Deaver by Powell. And I, grandma invited me to go with her. So mom and dad took me over there to the train and we traveled uh, up to Billings, Montana, stayed overnight in a hotel. The next day caught the bus the uh, it, it was Continental Trailways took caught the bus down to the ranch and I got to stay at the ranch for maybe a week or so but I got to ride the train with with Grandma Smith and then stay in the hotel with her which was you know you didn't go stay in hotels or ride on trains much back in those days but yeah it's anyway that was a that was an amazing experience with Grandma Smith but most of my most of my growing up years were more around my mom's parents and. Uh, and when we moved from Sarah to Powell, um, my brother was eight years older than me. So when I was six, he was 14. And when summer would come, my mom worked and my brother didn't want to babysit his little brother all summer. So I'd get sent out to Sarah every summer to spend the summer with Poppy and Grandma so that, you know, somebody would be looking out after me. And... Uh, uh, I got driven out there once or twice. I took the train at least twice. I took the plane once or twice. So those were great adventures for a young boy that was, you know, seven to 11 years old, uh, getting to take those trips all by myself uh, out to be with my grandparents for the summer. I can't imagine sending one of my kids on a trip like that without me. but. It's awesome that you got to do that back then. Well, back in those days, life was a lot more trustworthy, and you know the you just didn't have to worry. And uh, when they'd put me on the train, you know, there most of the uh, train conductors were black men, and they they were nice and wore a uniform, and you know they just keep an eye out on me because they knew I was traveling by myself. But 
the amazing thing about the train, uh, of course, I love trains, and this I grew to love trains for two reasons. One, because I got to ride on them quite a bit when I was a little boy, but also because uh, my uh, parents had bought my brother a train set a few years before I was born. And then when I was about five, they bought me a train set. I still go, got both sets of trains, which are antiques today, but I loved playing with those. And and then um, the great experience going out to, to uh, Vancouver, Washington from Billings uh, when we lived in Powell and then from Missoula when we lived in Missoula, Montana they had they had what they called vista dome cars on them so about every third car they were a complete tra passenger train but about every third car would have a dome on the top and uh, you could go upstairs and sit up there there was probably there were double seats on each side of the aisle there were probably 10 or 12 uh really big soft comfortable double seats and you were actually up above the car, so you could look ahead of the train, to the side of the train, to the back of the train. And I I loved it. So, you know, you're, there weren't any tickets for those seats. So if you were on the train somewhere, you could go, and if there was a seat available, you could sit up in the Vista Dome. So I would always have a seat on the Vista Dome car downstairs, and the restrooms were down there and everything. But I would, as soon as I got on the train, I would go up and see if I could get in a seat upstairs on the in the Vista Dome, and I I did I was able to usually quite rapidly. But as we went along, people would come and go. You know, they'd go down to the dining car to eat, and I did that too, which was always a cool experience. But but eventually, I would work my way in the Vista Dome up until I got in the front seats. And in front of the front seats, there was a great big dashboard, you know, underneath the glass. And uh, it was just, it's its magic to think about it. But I would eventually uh, sit in the front seat. And sometimes somebody would sit by me, but a lot of times I had the double seat to myself, probably because I put my pillow beside me and they wouldn't feel like they were welcome. <laughs> and I would literally stay up there the rest of the train ride so as to not lose my front seat in the Vista Dome. And I would sleep up there at night. And the, the conductor never did make me not do that. But I wonder, I can't remember if I was the only person up in the Vista Dome at night sleeping up there. So that was really cool. And going from Montana to Washington, you're going through the Rocky Mountains. You're going past um, the Cascades. I mean, all kinds of, yeah, a lot of terrain there. Get a little bit emotional, but I, uh, you'd go through the forests and past the lakes and, and uh, just, it's an absolutely gorgeous trip. And so uh, the train would be up in the top of the, of the Rocky Mountains at night. And I, I can just remember one night, particularly when I woke up and, you know, you got the clickety clack of the tracks, especially back then because they didn't have mile long rails. You know, the tracks were only probably 50 or hundred feet long. So there was a lot of clickety clacks, but I remember waking up one night in the middle of the night in the Vista Dome and I sat up and of course, you know, you can see straight up too. So I looked up into the sky and there's a full moon shining and you could see the trees. I mean, it was almost like daylight. You could see the forest around you. And 
and I looked out ahead of me and we were winding along the track, you know, in the train making gentle curves here and there. And you could see the engine up there with the light swinging back and forth as the, as we're going along in the dark and watching the, the train as it snakes its way through the mountains. And I'll tell you, that was just heaven for me. It was like the most magical I mean, if you've seen, what's that show about the kid at Christmas that rides the train? What's that one called? Polar Express. Huh? The Polar Express. Polar Express, yeah. So I've been on the Polar Express <laughs> more than once in my life. And so if you want to talk about a fun story growing up, it was being able to travel out to the to my grandparents and then spend the summer out there you know, I'd herd the cows in each day for my grandfather to milk them. And I had friends because I started first grade out there. So every summer I would go get to see all my friends that I had formed when I was in first grade. And I could spend the summer playing with my friends and and going around with my grandfather on the farm. And, and he had a tractor and I got to ride on the tractor. In fact, when I was probably 10 or 11, I got to start driving the tractor. So those were the magical days and then, of course, my, my uncle kept the ranch. My dad didn't want to be a rancher, so he went into the tractor sales business. But we'd go to go to the ranch in Montana uh, once or twice or four times a year, depending on how close we lived to it. And uh, I could, uh, they'd always have, they had, they had sheep, they had pigs, they had chickens, they had cattle. Um, did I say pigs? Anyway. Mm -hmm. Uh, in the spring, we'd go to visit and there'd be a lot of sheep that would, the, if the ewes died or they had too many sheep, too many lambs, we called them bummers. And so we'd have to feel, feed the bummers because they wouldn't get to eat otherwise. So we had Coke bottles with uh, plastic nipples up over the top and Aunt Ramona would make up whatever the milk uh, mixture was. And we'd, uh, they had a wire fence and we'd stick the bottles through the wire fence and the lambs would, would, uh, you know, suck the milk out of the bottles. And so that was, that was a thrilling experience. And my, my grandfather was a true cowboy. So he had all kinds of cattle and sheep and, uh, horses and they would, um, uh, saddle up and go out and round up the cattle and, and for branding every year or to, to, run them through the dip, you know, to kill off the bugs. And so I got to ride horses and, and see all of that stuff happen. And yet just being a young kid and not living on the ranch, I wasn't really expected to have to do something. I didn't have assigned chores like my cousins did. So I'd go to the ranch and play and I'd go to the farm and play, but I never had to work. And so <laughs> I was pretty rotten spoiled, but boy, did I have fun. Yeah, I'll, I'll bet. It sounds fun. My word. <laughs> Those are some, some formative experiences form just in your, in your young years. I mean, formative years. That's, that's terrific. Oh man. I had no idea. They're in uh, Sarah. Is Sarah's near Vancouver, Washington? So this is the south. This is southwest. Is that right? It's north of Vancouver, about ten miles, and uh, you may find that on the map still. But Van uh, Ridgefield is five miles north of Sarah, so it's it's west of I five, about five miles, about ten miles north of Vancouver. But they had the 
they had the fairgrounds, the country school, the Methodist church, and the Sarah store with also a gas pump. That was all within, you know, a fairly small area. And uh, there's somebody living in the house that was part of the Sarah store, but nothing, none of the rest of that exists. The, the uh, schoolhouse, the county fairgrounds, and the and the Methodist Church were all eventually torn down. There is a there is a gra- graveyard there that I I don't know what if it's called anything about Sarah Cemetery, but it's uh, anyway. But in my memory, you know, it lives on. It was an amazing time in my life to, uh, you know, I'm old enough now to say I started in country school, <laughs> you know, and yeah. was in with the second graders as a first grader, but that was a, and then my grandparents lived in a big old two-story Victorian home. It was, it was magic itself. You know, as a kid, everything's magic, but they were so good to me. And uh, the only scary thing was, you know, TV was fairly new and uh, they'd watch TV till nine or 10 at night and they'd make me go to bed at eight o'clock. So grandma would take me upstairs and tuck me in then she'd turn off the lights and it was completely pitch black because we're out in the country and she'd go down to watch TV with Poppy and I'd be up there thinking of Frankenstein and the werewolf and every possible monster <laughs> under my bed and I'd be scared <laughs> to death every night that I went. I had to go up there and go to sleep in the dark, but they didn't, they didn't change their their pattern. That's what I had to do. So, you know, you'd think that'd keep me from wanting to to go out there, but everything else was so much more overwhelmingly amazing. Yeah. And they had a screen, they had a front porch that was the full width of the house and they had an old couch out there and, and they'd always make me take a nap. So I'm still really good at taking naps thanks to their training. But but I would go out. They I'd sleep out on that porch for my nap in the afternoon, and and as soon as I wake up, of course, I'd go to find my friends to play with. But and and they would take a nap when I did. But then it then eventually uh, they had a screen porch upstairs on the back, and it was the full width of the house, and it was probably about eight feet, six to eight feet wide. And all screened in, and they had a single bed out there and some stuff kind of stored on it. And when I got to be, I don't know, probably nine or ten, um, I don't know if I asked or they offered or how it turned out, but I spent that whole summer sleeping on that bed out there on that screen porch. And I am telling you, that was another amazing experience. So you can just tell I was completely in love. Now, my grandfather had a stroke when he was 70 or 71. And he couldn't run the cows or run that whole farm anymore. And uh, we, I went home at the end of the summer. That was the, that uh, November, Thanksgiving, that, that November, we went out to, to be with them at Thanksgiving. And they were staying in a rental because they'd sold the farm and they hadn't found a place to buy yet. It was the Thanksgiving that, John F. Kennedy was shot and killed in uh, Texas. So that was all over the news. And I'll always remember that week weekend for that. But uh, anyway, I, I might as well have been shot and killed. There I am, 11 years old. And I can't understand how that farm wasn't in my life anymore. It was like I couldn't expect understand how that could have even happened that was just 
life to me. So that was a tough time in my life. But I still went and stayed with my grandparents in town in Vancouver where they lived for till my grandfather died. And well, I mean, I quit going before my grandfather died, but they stayed there till after my grandfather died. And uh, it wasn't much fun going. It wasn't nearly the fun going. I always, I still enjoyed Poppy and Grandma, but going and uh, staying in town in their house, you know, compared to being out on the farm near my friends was, uh, that was just never, never the same. Yeah, but it's really fond, solidifying memories. Yeah. And uh, <laughs> part of that fun on the farm was, of course, Poppy would put the cows in a couple of fields, and then he always had a field that he raised hay in for for hay for the winter. And uh, I'd I'd get to help him. Uh, I'd ride on the tractor when he would cut the hay, or when we were uh, fertilizing the fields. Or, but but when it was, uh, he didn't have a rake back in those days. You cut you cut the hay, then you rake the hay, and then you baled the hay. And today they do it in a lot shorter fashion, but. Um, when it came time to load up the bales on the, on the, uh, hay wagon, um, I was still, like I say, young. And so I didn't have to, uh, buck hay, although I loved the thought of it, but they'd throw the hay on the, uh, wagon. And, and as the rows would stack up, I'd just cl keep climbing up on the bales until I was about six bales high on the hay wagon. And, you know, the tractor pulling me back to the to bar, the barn, and then they had a big conveyor belt thing that they'd put up there and run the hay up into the hayloft. And then I'd get to go into the barn, and Poppy had a big rope up on one of the beams in the barn, and you could get on, you could grab that rope and swing clear out over the, the bay where the cows would come in, and then back into the some other spot on the hay, stack of hay. And of course, so you can imagine how much fun that was. And so then one summer it came to when I could drive the tractor. Now I'm driving the tractor with a hay wagon while everybody's loading it. And that was even more exciting. So, Oh, my word. This is like the yeah. ideal childhood for every boy. <laughs> I know. And I just, I tell you, I was just so completely spoiled. And honestly, I feel like Heavenly Father's done nothing but spoil me my entire life. So I don't know why, but uh, I'm very grateful. Oh, those were some fun times growing up as a kid. Yeah, I would say so. My word. Well, as you, as you got older, what? Uh, how did these these experiences then influence you as you got you know into college and then kids of your own? And I remember, well, the train aspect. I remember there was a train that we set up in the Corvallis house when I was little, and that was. But that's my own memories. But anyway. Yeah, that was. Probably had both those trains running. My dad, uh, my dad built a whole train table and had overpasses and tunnels and a, you know, a train station that we made out of all of the stuff we had. I've still got all the equipment, but he had that down in the basement when we lived in Missoula, and I'd go down there and play with the train for hours sometimes. But yeah, so you got to play on that train. Well, what happened was I, I got, I turned. Uh, I think I was, well, I was an answer to prayer to everybody in my family, and I won't go over all the reasons why, but that's part of the reason why I've just had such a spoiled life. I just was kind of everybody's blessing, and, and I didn't know that as a kid. Uh, I had to find that out later, but 
So my life was pretty idyllic, but you know, you turn 13 or 14 and they, they call those the teenage years. And then I, I was, I guess, a pretty good kid, but I got into plenty of trouble and I know I worried my parents. And uh, finally, we moved to Eugene, Oregon eventually, and uh, University of Oregon was there, 1969. That was the height of the hippie movement, and uh, the hippies' big hangout was at Haight, the corners of Haight and Ashbury in San Francisco. Those were two streets, Haight-Ashbury. And uh, that movement started in around 67, 68, 69, before that, back in the 50s, they had the beatniks. And then when I came along, it was the hippies. And so Eugene became the second main headquarters for hippies at the University of Oregon. And I, I came out of Walla Walla, Washington, is where we had moved to from Missoula. In 1969, I graduated from high school in Walla Walla. And girls had to wear dresses, and everybody had it. There was a kind of somewhat of a dress code. I mean, you didn't have a uniform, but girls had to wear dresses. And you couldn't smoke on ca campus, and it was a closed campus. You couldn't leave campus. You know, we had a campus. We had four or five buildings with grass in between, kind of like college. But it was a high school, so I, call it, I talk about campus. But anyhow, you couldn't leave school during the day. Well, the next year... They had a smoking room on campus. You could uh, leave campus if you wanted to and come and go. And the girls didn't have to wear dresses anymore. So, you know, there was this huge culture change or culture shock for me that began uh, the year after I graduated. And so I wanted to go to college, and my parents had moved to a college town, so I decided to move there with them and, and go to University of Oregon. And I remember walking around campus looking at all these long-haired, weird people. I'm sorry, I'm, you know, back then that was what it was because everybody had short hair. But and, Those were uh, the rebels of the, of the yeah, era. Yeah, they had an interesting perfume that most of them wore. And I finally figured out that that wasn't perfume, it was marijuana. <laughs> <laughs> That's how naive I was. And um, so anyway, and we'd... We'd gone to the Methodist Church as I grew up as a kid, but and even during high school. But when we moved to Eugene, we just didn't any of us choose. We just didn't think about going to church, I guess. And uh, and I hung out. I worked at a restaurant called Mister Steak, and I was a I was a steak. You know, I was a fry cook. I was pretty proud of myself. But anyway, how old people, were you at the time? I was uh, seventeen when I was doing that. Seventeen and eighteen. But the people that worked there were were not the highest quality people you could hang around. And so I kind of hung around with a bunch of guys that that had come, I guess, back in those days, you'd say they came from the wrong side of the track. So I didn't get into very much trouble, but I I tried to a couple of times. <laughs> I, I accused the Lord of somehow doing something to protect me and uh, which didn't seem fair but um but anyway so i had so, a rough patch there and uh at one point i uh we worked late one night and uh decided to go out to another restaurant to eat hamburgers the cooks me and th i had let's see there was five of us in the car and i was driving 
and we went out to uh, a rest another restaurant to have and it was out a little bit out in the country there from Eugene and we went out there just to eat cuz we were wanting to do something it was only like 11 o'clock or 12 o'clock at night you know and we were teenagers and hanging out so we went out and ate and it was all innocent but coming back i took a a country road that i hadn't been on before and um anyway i i was i don't remember there being a speed limit and there wasn't any corner signs or anything. But anyway, I came down this hill, and I was probably doing 45. And I came up to a corner that was probably like a 15-mile-an-hour corner. Anyway, I, I couldn't make the corner, and I rolled my car. Oh, and, my word. Uh, Whoa. As the car was rolling, my my left elbow busted out my driver's side side window, and I started going out of the car, and I've got gravel going through my hair and and I'm expecting the car to finish rolling over on top of me when I cried out for the Lord to save me and all of a sudden I went back into the car and it and it stopped rolling and I realized at 18 years old that I wasn't it wasn't that I didn't have to worry about dying until I was 80 I was 18 years old and I'd almost just died and so now I'm realizing I'm mortal and I decided that I needed to find out more about life after death because all I knew as a Methodist was you either sit on a cloud and play a harp or you burn in hell forever. And that, that was your two choices. And that's what started me on the road towards looking uh, to find the truth or to find out some answer because no church seemed to have one about it except the one I just explained. That was followed by uh, the Vietnam War. I was now 18, and I was eligible for the draft. And so um, I didn't have to worry about it the rest of that year. That was 1970. But in 1971, uh, I was 18, and they did a, they did a raffle, and they'd put your, everybody's birth date in a big bin, you know, and spin, the, spin it and pull out the birth dates one by one. And so my, my birth date came out fairly soon in that raffle, and I realized that I'd be getting drafted and probably going into the Army and crawling around with the snakes and the napalm in Vietnam. And, uh, you know, I had heard enough horror stories. I didn't want to do that. I guess you can call me chicken, and I think that's probably right. I did not want that. I don't that think experience. so. That's, that, that was brutal, brutal war. Yeah. So so I ended up being able to join the Coast Guard Reserve to keep from having that happen to me. And, uh, of course, I didn't know, I, I didn't want to be in the military, although my brother had loved being in the Air Force back in the early 60s. But so then I ended up uh, going into the Coast Guard boot camp, and it was eight weeks of of hell. It wasn't burning, but it was, it was hell. And, uh, <laughs> so I got to experience hell a little bit earlier than I thought as well. And, uh, the big thing is when you, when you join, uh, the military, you're assigned an, a, a number and you're no longer a person. You're now, uh, you're just a, a number on a contract and you've sold your, your freedom. You're, you're, you're now property of the U S government and they just number their property with numbers. They keep track of it. And so I, you know, I lost my freedom, and I went through a, a really tough boot camp, where, uh, you know, the uh, the officers in charge before I had gotten there were really able to abuse, you know, the enlisted, but they had gotten reprimanded for some of that, 
but it was still pretty bad when I was there. So it, it was pretty scary, pretty hard, pretty bad. By the time I got out of out of the Coast Guard Reserve active duty portion and went, was able to go back home and only go to the local uh, reserve unit one weekend a month, I had now learned what it was like to lose my freedom. So I'd almost died, and then I'd almost, and then I'd lost my freedom for a few months. And when I came home from the Coast Guard, I was absolutely spiritually empty, and I was looking for a church to join. And lo and behold, my brother's next door neighbor was a stake missionary. And he asked my brother if he'd like to learn more about the church. And he asked if my brother knew anybody else that would like to. And so we took the discussions at my brother's home. And uh, and we took about four months. Uh, and, you know, investigators really don't know um, what they're supposed to do, it turns out. And, you know, we were just kind of going along. And so to uh, to expedite it a little bit more, uh, one night I went back to Mr. Stake to work when I came home from the Coast Guard, and one night we closed late and we were in a hurry, and I had taken a a fryer vat of of uh, fry oil, had that the vat from the fryer. I was carrying it through the greasy floored kitchen, and 350 degree oil, and I slipped and fell, and I poured that two gallons of uh, oil all over myself. Oh, my word. That ended is... up in the hospital. And what I'm trying to say is, what did I learn from this experience? Well, I learned that God was knocking on my door pretty hard and that I was a prideful little stinker and uh, still am, I guess, but the Lord had to really knock hard. You know, and so these crises come and obstacles appear to ask us if we're really sure if that's what we want. And um, obstacles either give us the strength to overcome by overcoming them to go on to reach our goal, or they deflect us to a parallel path that we would have never otherwise gotten onto uh, to, to be where we should be going. And that's what it did for me. So as a result of almost uh, losing my life in a car wreck and then losing my freedom in the Coast Guard and then uh, getting boiled in oil, <laughs> I finally was ready to uh, join the church. And of course, my life has been dramatically different ever since. So maybe that's the answer to that question that you had about hard experiences and what I learned from it. That's incredible. I had no idea that... How how long was the recovery there? Sorry, I guess that's brass tacks, kind of off topic. But how long were you recovering from that oil? That's wow. Oh, they, uh, you know, they they uh, put me in alcohol ice baths to take the heat out of my body. I learned from being a fry cook that if you get burned, the, what you want to do is go find some ice water because you want to get the heat to come back out. That's what happens when you get burned; is the heat goes into your body and stays there. But if you can help get it back out you the burn is less um you know it's it does less to you but anyway uh so they had me on alcohol ice baths because the alcohol would reduce the temperature of the ice as it melted and so it'd be colder and then they seemed like they greased me up with a bunch of vaseline and they wrapped me up in a in gauze and sent me home. And you can imagine what my parents did when I walked in the door wrapped oh, up yeah. like the mummy, you know, and it was almost 
it's almost Halloween. <laughs> so, oh my word. I can't even imagine as a parent. Oh, that's yeah. horrific. Well, and then the night they had to come down to the hospital when I had all a hundred and some stitches in my neck, you know, from, from my car wreck. I mean, there was, I put my parents through some hard times there uh, as I was learning some things, but, um, uh, Anyway, I, I think it only took a few weeks for that. But although I had two-tone skin on my, that I, I couldn't see my back and other places, but I had two-tone skin on my left arm where, you know, the oil had poured on it where it hadn't. And, and so if yeah, my yeah. skin was pink for a year or two, but it didn't really bother me too bad. What was it about the church and maybe the discussions in particular? You know, you've had these these several experiences, which you know, maybe humbled you or changed your, your mental perspective, but what was it about the church that drew you in that, that, that piqued your interest or what, what was it? Well, that's a great question. Thanks for asking. The first discussion was about Joseph Smith, this kid in New York that found these gold plates and, and wrote the book of Mormon out of it, saw the father and the son what a bunch of hogwash. I never heard any wild stories like that in my life. Joe Smith and the Gold Bible. I didn't believe it at all. It was like, this is ridiculously ridiculous. Yeah, yeah. Second discussion, the plan of salvation. All of a sudden, here were all the answers to all the questions I had about life after death. In fact, I had lived before I came here. I now knew where I had come from why I was here and where I was going for the first time in my life. This life had a purpose beyond being a stupid, dumb kid and being alone. Um, when I heard the, the plan of salvation, the Spirit whispered to me, you've always known this was true. And I go, what? I just now heard about it. I hadn't, you know, and I didn't know that that was the Spirit speaking to me, but of course it did. We went through the rest of the discussions, and we still hadn't done anything. So one day the missionaries stopped by, and they played Profile of a Prophet, which is Hugh B. Brown. If you haven't ever listened to Profile of a Prophet, I'm telling you, that's a powerful talk. And uh, boy, did I feel the Spirit in that. And uh, that was the second time I really heard the Spirit. And I, I've never heard a voice or seen a light, but I can tell you when the Lord speaks to me. And I shared that one about being told I'd always known that the plan of salvation was true. But that's what really got me going. And then when I, when I listened to Hugh B. Brown and was so touched by the Spirit, I had this feeling come over me that God was going to be disappointed if I didn't join the church. Well, I thought that was my thoughts. I didn't, it took me 30 years to realize that that was the Holy Ghost, the Lord speaking to me. I'm going to be disappointed if you don't join the church. So uh, I lived 20 miles from my brother, and I missionaries were coming by my home, and the state missionary that found us in the first place was talking to my brother. So the next day I drove over to my brother's house, and I walked in the kitchen, and, and I, Bill and Kathy, he was married and had two kids. I said, I have this feeling that if we don't join the church, the Lord's going to be disappointed. And Kathy immediately said, that's just how I feel. And my brother said, yeah, but we can't drink beer anymore. <laughs> <And> so, 
And, and so I said, yeah, but, you know, yeah, that's true. But, and I since said many times, what would I, what would have become of me had beer, beer been more important than not disappointing the Lord and I had, had chosen beer over joining the church? But anyway, it was the plan of salvation. It was finally the answers to my deep questions about life after death because, uh, you know, what I haven't explained yet in this discussion today when I when I pondered about what life might be after I died, and I wondered about the cloud and the burning hell, the thing that really scared me, and I suppose the Lord probably put that thought into my mind long before I got the Holy Ghost and joined the church, but the thought came to me, if I die and I don't remember this life and myself here when I'm in heaven, then I'm going to be dead. And it scared the heck out of me because I might not remember myself. And so, therefore, this person would be dead. And uh, so it was the plan of salvation that got me into the church, plus the promptings of the Holy Ghost. And I'll tell you that over the next few weeks and months, I had a sem uh, Sunday school teacher that taught the, you know, what would they call it, gospel essentials class, like, you know, 12 lessons about the basics of the gospel. I don't know what it was called back then or how many lessons it was, but I learned about keeping the Sabbath day holy. I learned about the word of wisdom. I learned about paying tithing. And, uh, you know, I didn't pick up on any of that when I got, when I was an investigator. But one of the lessons was about how and I knew the church was true, of course, by now, because of the plan of salvation and the whisperings of the Spirit. Right, exactly. So there was a lesson one Sunday about Joseph Smith and the first vision and the translation of the gold plates. And the Sunday school teacher said, Now, you know, the church couldn't be true if that didn't happen. Joseph Smith is either a prophet or if he isn't, or he isn't, but if he isn't, then the church isn't true. And all of a sudden, I just said to myself, oh my gosh, that actually happened. Because I knew the church was true by then. So that's how I came in. I came into Joseph Smith and the Book of Mormon in the back door. That was quite a few weeks or maybe months after I joined the church. I still didn't believe that story. But, uh, you know, I had a testimony of all these other things. And the one Sunday that he taught the Sabbath day, and he said, you know, you're not supposed to work on Sunday. We're supposed to keep the Sabbath day holy, and we're not supposed to go shopping because that makes other people have to work. And if nobody would shop on Sunday, the stores would all close, and everybody could go to church or worship God if they wanted to. And I thought, well, and he says, and if you have faith, the Lord can make it so that you don't have to work on Sunday. And I thought, oh, my gosh, I was working at Safeway. That's the other thing. As soon as I joined the church, the Lord gave me a new job. I left my old friends. I was in a with a pe bunch of people I didn't know, and I don't want to make my story longer necessarily. There was a lot of other things that happened that the Lord orchestrated to make it easier for me to join the church and stay in the church rather than get sucked by that, back out by all my Gentile friends, but which, by the way, weren't friends. All my friends left me when they found out I became a Mormon, and except for one guy, and 
Tom Saraceno turned out to be the only friend I had in that whole group of people because he still was my friend after I joined the church. But anyway, the next day I went into my boss at Safeway and he was a wonderful man and so good to me, part of another part of the Lord's blessing me. And I said, I don't want to work on Sundays anymore. And of course, I girded up my loins. I didn't know what to think to go in there and ask him to have Sundays off. And he was grooming me to become a store manager. He said, well, I was going to put you in the produce department, but you need to work Sundays to have that job. And I said, well, I'm sorry, but I've just got to have Sundays off for, him right, for, right now, for, now, uh, for now on. And he, he was visibly disappointed, just greatly disappointed. But he said, okay, you've got Sundays off. And since that day in 1972, I've never worked another Sunday. So that was a eye opener for me. So there's how the changes came about, and that's how the discussions affected my life. It brought the Holy Ghost, and uh, it brought in bringing the Holy Ghost. It brought love and friendship. I wasn't alone because in my teenage years with my rebelliousness and whatever, I, I was lonely and I didn't know how to date girls and didn't think I'd ever find one to marry. I was just alone. And I joined the church and got the gift of the Holy Ghost. Yeah. And I've never been alone since. So... I love in you sharing those experiences, how your testimony <clears throat> grew line by line and you gained, you know, deeper understandings of the truth. But like, like when you heard the plan of salvation, you knew that was true and it was okay that you didn't know Joseph Smith was a prophet yet, but you could still move forward in the gospel. I think sometimes we have the misconception that we need to understand and have a testimony of everything now. But I love that it kind of was a process for you and that we have the space to have a testimony of one thing and to learn and grow our testimony in other things and receive those witnesses as we keep moving forward. Yeah, I really appreciate that thought. You know, I tell people in Second Peter, it says that we are called out of the darkness into his marvelous light. And that's exactly how I feel. But it seemed like it was sudden but it wasn't mine i never had a burning from the top of my head to my toes i had the spirit talk to me those two times that i can remember and then yes i just kept having experiences where i learned things and for the next six years from 20 to 26 my life just went straight up i we moved to brookings oregon i transferred to another safeway store down there we ended up being in a uh, a branch in Brookings and they needed every possible person. Our whole family moved down there. So Bill and Kathy and I were all members of the church. My parents weren't. And um, they just welcomed us with open arms. They gave us callings. They just were amazing support. And I, I learned and grew in my callings. Um, a, 
a family moved in that had a son my age, and I didn't know, you know, there were hardly any people my age down there in that branch. So I really kind of grabbed onto him. We got to be good friends, but he was only there for the summer because he was going to go off to college. And we talked about it, and it made me feel like, well, I wonder if I should go back to school because I hadn't been now for a while. I decided to go get a patriarchal blessing, which has come true year after year after year for almost 50 years now. Uh, with some very specific experiences happening. You know, I had one experience happen 37 years later. It was written, it was right out of the writing in my blessing. I thought, how could the Lord know 37 years in advance that I'd have this specific experience? But anyway, my blessing said I'd be respected for my wisdom and knowledge. And I thought, I'm a dumb kid. I don't know anything. So I went off to BYU I drove into Provo, you you guys, you live down there. Yeah. I drove yeah. up Main Street. What's at the end of Main Street, do you know? About by the hills there? It's the insane asylum. <laughs> it's the state institution for the mentally ill. <laughs> <laughs> but it's got a big got a big, you know, grass down the middle of the street and trees and it's a big building there and I drove up there thinking it was BYU. Oh, <laughs> and, no. Oh, my and I pulled up in front of it. I go, well, this isn't BYU. <laughs> but it was a great detour because I went from there and I got on university and I went up and found my way to BYU. And I walked up and went into the Jesse Knight building, the JKB building, which Jesse Knight now has had a whole bunch of influence in my life since then. I had no idea then, but... No, it wasn't the Jesse Knight building. I went in the ASB, the administrative, Abraham S. Smoot building. Yeah, yeah. And uh, I walked up. Somebody said, go to that desk, and they can they can give you some guidance on places you can stay, whether you're going to be on campus or in an apartment. And I walked up there, and I was, I just, when I walked up to the desk, this uh, guy and a girl walked up just a half a minute before me, and he says, uh, yeah, my, this is my fiance and we're getting married and I, I'm, I need to get out of my apartment contract. You know, I mean, this is the very beginning of the winter semester. I need to get out of my contract because we're going to get married and live together. And so I stepped right up to the desk and I said, well, I just got into town and I don't know anything about where to stay and I'm looking for a place. I said, where are you? And he says, well, I'm just three blocks off campus. It's really handy. And I said, well, I would be willing to look at it. He said, okay, I'll meet you there in an hour or something. And I said, great. I didn't even talk to the lady. I just ended up talking to him. So I drove, you know, drove down there and found his apartment. And, uh, and I ended up rooming with five other guys who were the exact five people that the Lord put me in with in order for me to continue to grow in my testimony and to stay active and to be nurtured further. And I know that the Lord worked out that timing. I had to go past the insane asylum in order to rendezvous with this kid at just the right time. <laughs> and then Steve was my roommate, Steve Victor, and he was this amazing, amazing return missionary. 
And uh, four of the five guys I was in there with were all returned missionaries. And Fred wasn't, but he was a new convert like me. And uh, these guys were great to room with. But Steve, my, my actual roommate, we had three bedrooms, and I was in with Steve. He, that was the room that this kid at the desk, that was his, had been his roommate, was Steve. And so I, went in, I was put in the best room of the three. And uh, one day, Steve and I are walking across campus, and, you know, and you're like eight abreast, you know, walking down the sidewalk between classes. And this girl comes walking along the opposite direction of us. And I said to Steve, there, see that cute girl right there? I, she's in my history class, and I got to figure out how to ask her out on a date. And he says, oh, I know her. That's Lynette Berry. We went, we went to high school together. <laughs> so he told me all about her. And so then I called her one day on the phone and I said, hi, this is John Smith. I don't know if you remember me. We went to high school together. And, you know, you you ran that snow cone uh, stand in the park during the summer. And I used to come and have snow cones there. And she says, yeah, I, I think I could remember who you are. <laughs> Because I didn't know what else to do to get to know this girl. Mm-hmm. So I asked her out on a date, and I went to pick her up, and I was down in the foyer of her her dormitory, and she comes walking in there, and she has this look on her face like she has no clue who she's looking for. And, of course, I knew she didn't because she didn't know who I was, really. <laughs> so I immediately jumped up and went over and greeted her. And Lynette stole my heart and spent a semester slapping me under the chin, raising my standards and teaching me of the kind of a quality of a young man that she was looking for to marry. And you know what? I never quite qualified for Lynette, but she prepared me in every single way for what I would eventually want to become. And her influence had a lot to do with the last devotional of that school semester when Lawrence C. Dunn came to the Marriott Center, and he talked about going on a mission. And Lynette said to me she'd never marry anybody unless they're a return missionary. And during his talk, the Lord said to me, I'm talking to you. I want you to go on a mission. I was 24 years old. And I said, but you said, and because back when I was 21, the bishop, when I first joined the church, wanted me to go on a mission. But as I prayed about it, the Lord said, well, you can stay and help your dad or you can go on a mission. And so I stayed to help my dad. And I'm sure the bishop figured I didn't know how to get an answer to prayer, right? But anyway, a few years later, the Lord says, I want you to go. And I said, well, you said, he said, that was then, this is now, I want you to go. And so right then I said, well, okay. I mean, you know, God, the father speaks to you and asks you to do something, you know, what are you going to do? Of course, you know, I said, well, sure, I'll go then. So Lynette and I are walking out of the Marriott Center, and I said, well, I just wanted you to know I'm going on a mission. And she says, well, don't expect me to wait for you. (laughs) That's That's just who she was. (laughs) Well, gratefully so, because I went home to my apartment, and I said, Heavenly Father, uh, I'm probably never going to find a girl that would have me, and I don't want to find the wrong one that might have me, but wouldn't be right. I said, I'm going on a mission at 24, and all I did to come to BYU really was to find somebody to marry in the temple for time and all eternity. And so I just need you to do one thing for me. I said, 
I'm going to forget about girls for two years. I'm going to work my heart out because I'm not wasting two years from 24 to 26. If I'm going to do that, I'm just going to stay home and get married. But I'm going to go work my heart out and forget about girls. But when I come home, would you show me who to marry? And he said he would. I felt like we spit and shook hands, you know, it was a commitment. Yeah, exactly. I came home two years later at 26 and I said, okay, I'm, I'm home, I'm ready. And two months later, Karen and her family walked into the Christmas program down at the, it had become a ward while I was gone on my mission. They come walking in and I had, of course, I knew Bill and Renee and Dina, but, and Dan and Dave were on their mission. So I had never met them yet either, but. Karen comes walking by, and the Lord says, there she is. So that's why the insane asylum and getting to the university at just the right time and rooming with Steve Victor and meeting Lynette Berry and getting on a mission and coming home, that's why I have Karen. And she's been even better than anything else I've had in my life, which it's all been amazing, but wow. She's given me seven children and and has made me all that I've become ever since I that first six years of going straight up. So Yeah. Jesus. It's been a great blessing for me. And so saying, I I uh, don't mean to hurt any feelings, and the Lord has a plan and it'll all work out. And so, you know, but that's what happened to me. It's so, well, at least from, from my own experience, it's so rare for the Lord to be so direct in his communications. And I think that's interesting that it seems like most people have, you know, one or two of those very direct situations. And I think that's really amazing that, you know, hey, there she is. That's her. I just. Well, I don't know why. I don't, I've never seen a light or heard a voice. My dad, you know, joined the church while I was on my mission. My dad and mom and my grandmother, all my immediate family. But my dad heard a voice twice after he got baptized. I've never done that, but it isn't real common. But the Lord sometimes will just speak to me and I can, I can quote to you the sentences. Uh, one time as a bishop, he basically narrated an entire uh, talk that I was to give at a funeral of one of the sisters that had died. And I, from that experience, realized how prophets can write scripture because the Lord just flat dictates to you. So I, I've been spoiled to death, like I say, and uh, it isn't every day that I hear him speak to me like that, but um, he sure has been wonderful and shared some great things with me. Uncle John, tell us, Tell us about, well, I, I know you've got a lifetime of, of reaffirming experiences that, you know, have solidified, you know, what, what you've been describing growing up and these line upon line experiences, but what's, tell us something that's happened recently to reaffirm your testimony. Hmm. Uh -huh. Well, I'll tell you, the second time I was a bishop, by the time, um, both times I got called as bishop, you know, there was a month or so before my sustaining that was a preparatory state, which were 
involved with a lot of inspiration and or you might call it revelation to prepare but this last time I was uh, quite a bit older and and there were some unique challenges as to why I got called to be the bishop so I was really thrilled about it but it ended up being really really hard I thought the second time through I'm really going to nail this and this is going to be really something and it was it was really hard I had a a situation I was brought into that was just uh, difficult from day one, and I did my best with it, and, and I feel, you know, there was a lot of wonderful things that happened, but it was hard. By the time I'd served, I was called to serve for three years, and I said to the state president, I said, oh, well, you don't got to worry about that, you know, if I serve for five or whatever, that's fine. I don't, you know, I'm, I love serving as a bishop, so whatever. Two and a half years into the calling, and I was, I was, I'm sorry to say, weary and well doing. I, uh, I just was really overwhelmed with it, and really feeling the need for the Lord to put somebody else in there. Well, He knew that was going to happen, I'm sure. So I got released, and and that was a great relief. And uh, the week before I was uh, released in the ward. Um, the stake president called Karen and I into his office and I thought it was just, you know, the exit interview and thank you deal. And we went in there and, um, he asked me to serve on the high council. Well, about all I've done is serve on the high council. <laughs> I've had, I don't know, I've lost track 30 or 40 years of priesthood leadership and I've served on you know, anyway, I don't need to go over all these different callings that I've had. But I I told the state president I really wasn't wanting to do that very bad. <laughs> and why did he want me on there? And, you know, I kind of, it wasn't a very, I, you know, I'll, it wasn't like, oh, yippee, and sure, I'll accept it. It's like, oh, my gosh, are you kidding me? I'd been on the high council in this state just before I got called as bishop. Then they're putting me right back on it, and I was just really run down and tired about that time. So anyway, I accepted the calling, but he knew it was a hard thing for me to accept. And I went home and I said, Heavenly Father, I uh, I really need a confirmation that you're calling me to this and it's not just the state president's idea. And I have other ways that he speaks to me. And so I decided I would open something and read because quite often I call it books come off the shelf and it turns out it in this case it was a come follow me for that year and I uh this was 2019 I don't remember was that New Testament I think anyway I opened my come follow me manual and it opened up to a certain page and here's a quote by Elder Renlin and he says sometimes we have to repeat things a lot <laughs> I'm going, oh my gosh. There it is. <laughs> and I go, okay, Father Nevin, I'm sorry, but this is really hard for me. And I just, I guess I could just use another confirmation. Would you tell me just one more time? <laughs> so this time oh, I opened true. the Book of Mormon and it opened up to the words of Mormon. And uh, there was a verse in there that I, 
Well, well it, it's about serving with your whole soul. And I'd had that thought come to me. So I turned into Jerem, where Jerem, it talks about serving with your whole soul. And I had a cross-reference just a couple pages later to Words of Mormon, where it, where it talks about Benjamin, King Benjamin, serving with his whole soul. And I read a, a verse in there, and it's like, I've read the Book of Mormon how many times, but I've never really caught what it said in this verse. And of course, it really confirmed to me that I was supposed to have this calling. So, so that was, that's been a while ago, but um, I can tell you that I served as faithfully as I could in that high council calling. And I served for two and a half years. And it was all really hard for me. I had a lousy attitude. I, not, I don't think it affected my quality of serving, but I just didn't want to do it. I didn't want to keep training other people on how to do things. I just wanted to go out. I say, I call it, instead of being a chief, I just want to be an Indian for once. I wanted to go out and serve directly the people, not teach everybody else how to go do it and not get to do it myself. And so I can that's why that. it was hard. And so but the Lord was awfully good to me, though, in the calling and the duties I was, was given. But that's another story. But anyway, so I got released. Well, so, yeah, I got released about a month or so ago. I'd been another two and a half years and on the high council. And I got called, called as a ward missionary and a ward welfare specialist. And I'm telling you, I'm having the time of my life. This is just a wonderful opportunity. So the Lord's finally been kind, but I had to go through two and a half years of, of doing what he wanted. <laughs> and um, I had something else happen to me. Um, was it, let's see, that's been almost two years ago. I, I received another responsibility and it was, it was one that I also didn't really want, but I, knew the Lord was calling me to it, and I, I've accepted that, and so I, that's another assignment that I'm doing my best to fulfill. But So I don't know what your, I forgot now what your question was, but I've heard from the Lord, just as you asked the question, the thought is, I've heard from the Lord on a couple of things in the last two and a half years that have been really difficult for me, and I accepted it because He asked me to do it. And there's blessings attached, but we don't always get to do what we want, and everything we do isn't easy. And I guess I'll say, going on a mission at 24, and as difficult as my mission was, although I loved it to death and it blessed, has blessed my life so significantly, it was still a hard thing to do. So sometimes the Lord asks us to do hard things, and, you know, we... My patriarchal blessing said I would accept everything I was ever asked to do, and... That's what I've done, and all there's been is blessings by it. But sometimes we're asked to do hard things, and you know, I know Joseph Smith was never asked to do anything hard, was he? You know, I mean, no. <laughs> I, should, I expect that I yeah, should just a cakewalk for that guy. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, right. <laughs> so uh, that's my answer to your last question. I appreciate yeah. your questions, by the way. Where did you go on your mission? Um, well, we just talked about it in church today. I said that I'd already been to hell. <laughs> <laughs> I, I served two years in Chicago. 
That's you know, right. we talked That's today right. about uh, when we die, go to the spirit world. Those that have been faithful elders and sisters are still able to preach the gospel. We got to go to hell and preach to the spirits in prison. And I said, well, I've done that once already. <laughs> you know, yeah. I can do it again. <laughs> <laughs> No, that's, it's interesting that, you know, at, at whatever time of our lives, you know, we run into difficult things. And what's interesting is it's always a new difficult thing because, you know, what's difficult for us when we're 60 years old is, is very different than something that was difficult when we were 23. Yeah, that's true. Anyway, no, I, I appreciate that a lot. There's a, well, I think those are the bulk of our questions, but I mean, and, but we always like to, to wrap up with just kind of a closing question. But before I do that, Stacy, did you have any other? No, no, I think this has been wonderful. It's been really fun to hear. I've even heard stories I've never heard before. So I'm loving that. And, um, yeah, it was just, I think it was fun to hear you dad describe about your train rides and seeing all those places. And it, it made me appreciate more like, oh, like, this is why when we travel and we're on, you know, doing road trips together growing up, like, and going to the coast and going to Montana, like, you have just such great joy and enthusiasm for like all the scenes that we're seeing. Look, kids, look, you know, <laughs> just like describing those places and it's like this is a love that you've had since you were a child so it just it made me appreciate that that side of you even more and and it was fun to hear the stories but but yeah go ahead Dal. I just well to be to be candid I I I can relate to that that magical feeling that you're talking about when you're growing up and and these special moments and that's you know when you're when you're a, you know a young boy and running into those adventures you know full tilt both feet and uh yeah that's uh that's good stuff there but uh in your life right now what are the what are some of the things or what are some of the practices that you you have or or habits maybe or goals or or what, whatever those might be systems that you have in place, but what, how do you find peace in, in your life right now? How do you, how do you seek that out and find that? Well, thank you for that question. This is, you know, we're kind of summing up to, and this is to me the, the really most important things. If I was going to tell my you know, I've always hoped if I was on my deathbed and still could talk and my children were gathered around me, what was it? What would it be that I would say? Well, I would hope that I wouldn't be in a great deal of pain. And, uh, you know, I don't swear, but like uh, Curly of the Three Stooges said, I know all the voids. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I don't swear, but I, I have in my life before this life and uh you know before i joined the church and i had to hate to think that i'd be on my deathbed swearing because of pain or something you know being angry i hope that isn't the way i go out of this life 
But you're giving me an opportunity to say something now without uh, being in that situation. But I hope in that situation, if I have it, I'll, I'll be able to say some things that are important to my kids. But the single most important thing in my life that I believe is true for all of us is to have left home and realize how much we miss our heavenly parents and discover that we can develop a relationship with our heavenly father in this life like we never could have realized. And knowing he has a plan for our lives collectively and uniquely individual for each of us that he's intimately involved in our daily lives. And even, I mean, anyway, but especially as we can allow him, which we struggle with that in our, in our mortal fallen state. But he's just everything. And uh, he has been so loving and kind so gracious and merciful and has given me experiences so that my confidence can wax strong in his presence And I've experienced many mighty miracles. His love is an infinite love. And I will say that I have been to hell more than just going to Chicago. You know, I've, I had two, at least, or probably three times in the middle of the night that were profound enough that uh, I felt like that I'd gone to hell and was being chastised pretty severely. And nobody needs to consider that they were anything, the result of anything that serious that I'd done. But the last time that that happened was about six years ago. And boy, it was an interesting experience. Um... I won't share all of that, but what I will share is the things that I learned in that period of chastisement and darkness in the middle of the night that to me was like having a little bit of an experience like going to hell was it emanated from a place of love. My father in heaven was trying to teach me something even if it so be by the things that we suffer, we have to learn. And I think hell is another part of his grace and mercy in providing an atmosphere, an environment for us where we can learn things that we can't learn in any other way. I have learned that God loves all of his children, and there has to be a certain amount of chaos and randomness here in order for us to develop and live by faith. But 
He has a plan that encompasses all of his children and provides a way for all of them to come home. And it's all based on, in fact, it's in section 137 that we've just studied, that he judges us according to the desires of our hearts, which lead to our works. But I like to say that God prepares a place for us in the mansions of heaven according to the desires of our heart. Now, somebody's desire might be to be in the celestial kingdom in that mansion, but that's what Heavenly Father is going to prepare. Rather than using the word judge, which we might consider something terrible, it's more that he's preparing us a place where he knows we want to go. And some of us just don't want to go home and live in his presence. You know, we're 17 and we're just had it with dad and mom. We don't want to live with them there. We want to live our own life. And they never get over that, perhaps. But when I came out of that last experience in 2015, I got up in the middle of the night and I wrote down, I'm not going to worry about my children anymore. That darn Dallin and Michael and Stacy, I'm telling you, I'm not going <laughs> to <laughs> I'm not going to worry about them anymore because God is going to have a way with his children. After that experience, I knew if your father in heaven sits down with you and chastises you in the in the capacity of having an infinite love for you, you're going to have a hard time withholding from that. I know, because I've had a little bit of that experience. And I've got a calling right now or an opportunity that allows me to see people being together forever with their Father in Heaven. And anyway, no, if, any, if I could say anything, it would be that we each need to work, and I still need to work, on increasing and developing a relationship with our Heavenly Father through our elder brother, His Son, Jesus Christ, and the Holy Ghost. And we have our ministering angels that are around us to help us. And there are miracles waiting to happen if we'll just take upon ourselves impossible goals that require us to receive miracles in order for them to come to pass. And that's how I have peace, because I know God has a plan. And if I die in the next five minutes or 20 years from now, and I don't know how what that process will be like to get out of this body, but I, I, uh, I'm at peace with all of it. And um, I just want to say one final thing. We need to keep the commandments, because there are blessings that come from tithing and Sabbath day and word of wisdom. The Lord promises more than once in the scriptures that he will shake the heavens for the good of them that love him and keep his commandments. And he has shook the heavens for me so many times as a self-employed person that had to, I only had God to rely on to help me provide for my family over 40 some years. And he's taught me a lot. and I needed a lot of teaching. The only other last thing I want to say is if we'll just make and keep covenants with our Father. You know, when we make a covenant, it's just we make a promise to the Lord of th something. 
And in April 1980, when I graduated from BYU and we came to Corvallis and I started out in my own business right out of college, went to work for myself with a mentor, I was so hook, line, and sinker with my new career, I just eat, drink, and breathe it. I couldn't get it out of my mind and heart. I was just passionately engaged in it. I wanted to spend every waking minute in it. And I had a wife and two little children at home, and I had church callings. And I loved them, and it was all amazing, but it was just a lot. Anyway, I'm sure I was inspired to think. But one morning I decided, if I'm going to have a relationship with God, if he's going to know that he's important in my life, then I'm going to make a covenant with him that I'm going to get up at 5.50 every morning so that it gives me enough time to exercise, to ponder, to pray, to study the scriptures. And I have kept that covenant in my life, and that has been the singular blessing which has allowed a relationship with my Father in heaven to develop and blossom and it's still got a long ways to go, but I testify that we have a living, loving Heavenly Father. He's the God of the entire universe, and how much more we don't know. Our dad gets up every day and runs an entire universe. And what does that say about the capabilities and possibilities that exist within each one of us his children, with his DNA, with the capacity of a divine nature and destiny, according to the family proclamation. I hope that you and my descendants will ponder most upon these kinds of thoughts and try every day to walk with God. It's not easy, and I've not succeeded fully yet, but it's the only thing, ultimately, that's worthwhile. And if you want, if you want a snowmobile or a, a sea do or something, and you don't want it, or you want a motorcycle, Dallin, you don't want it to break your ankle. <laughs> you know, if you want a ski boat or you want what, what, those are all physical things. If you, if you need more money to do something, if you need, something major in your life or something minor like helping you tighten the bolts on your pickups bumper <laughs> i mean the lord will send ministering angels and he'll provide miracles but you just have to ask him don't forget to ask because he, if you read the bible dictionary on prayer god needs you to ask him before he can grant you the blessing and i testify that he answers our prayers they none of them go unheard they're all answered, sometimes not in the way that we'd prefer. But I hate the times in my life, and I'll probably still have them when I think of the fact that God's driving the car, and I'm in the back seat, a little five-year-old, kicking and screaming and having a hissy fit. And the car stops, and Father opens the door, and he's delivered us to right where we wanted to go. He loves us. He's good to us. 
And I share that testimony in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Uncle John, very much for your taking the time. We'd like to have you come back. We'd like to do it again. Um, yeah, absolutely. Um, Thanks, Dad. Thank you for excellent questions, and your uh, managing the podcast has been a sure. amazing. So, thank you. Well, thank you again. I think we'll we'll end there and. Uh, and sign off. Sounds good. <laughs> <laughs>